From Full Service Radio, this is Bad Feminists Making Films, a podcast presented by Riza and Ethnocene Collectives. We're your hosts, Emily Hong. And Maggie Lemire. And we'd like to welcome you back to our podcast, a show where we talk to bad feminist filmmakers who are confronting and changing the film industry through intersectional and decolonial practice. So today we have a really special episode for you all. It's a recording of a live event that the Bad Feminists Making Films teams curated and recorded recently in San Jose, California, in partnership with Represent Media. It was a really powerful event, and even though you weren't able to be there, Maggie, I'm so glad that we have this recording that we can share um, with our listeners. Um, the night really focused on the theme of decolonial lens, and we had a group of four women of color filmmakers who are emerging and seasoned, and they really were able to talk about their filmmaking journeys um, and how their films challenge a lot of the um, problematic narratives and approaches within the industry. Yeah, and you know, Bad Feminist Making Films actually started as a live event in D.C., I guess a year ago and some change. Um, and what we realized was there was great need um, for these kinds of not only online communities and spaces to happen, but offline. And the hope is that um, through making real relationships and real connections that we can find, you know, new avenues of um, collaboration and support. And from what I understand, that definitely happened again in San Jose. So, Emily, what stood out to you as our fantastic panel host from the evening? Well, it was a really easy panel to moderate because I basically just had to give the space for them to tell their incredible stories and um, to really share the power of their approaches. I think what stood out to me was the ways that um, many of these projects are shifting and challenging uh, these problematic narratives. So, um, for example, Nadia talked about how uh, her journey into filmmaking really started after 9-11 and how um, there were these sort of liberal imaginations around the Arab-American experience. Um, and then filmmaking was really a path to how she could forge her own narrative in that space. Um, and I think uh, Laura also similarly talked about her experience with moving between uh, school and home, where there were these different narratives of what it meant to be uh, Mexican-American. And I think also her experience in the borderlands shaping her own film project in Palestine. Yeah, I I'm curious to hear, Maggie, uh, for you, what was most powerful about the event? Oh, there are so many powerful moments that it's hard to choose. Um, you know, one of, some of the things that I related to were sort of how the filmmakers and the panel all spoke about always being interested in storytelling and social change, um, but not necessarily being encouraged and sometimes being actively discouraged from that path. And one of the filmmakers talked about just this, um, you know, incredible pivot moment in her life and her career and she saw like a 30-something-year-old woman director and realized that all, all those skills um, and ways of being were things that she could be and that she possessed. Um, and, and that sort of spoke to me about the need of, um, of having more women succeed, you know, to sort of mentor and, and show other women what's possible. Um, I feel like in that moment, I, I was kind of jealous. I was like, I wish when I was in my 20s, I had seen a 30-something badass, you know, woman director really doing an incredible directing job. You know, I kind of, I, I never had that and I kind of wish I had. Oh, absolutely. I feel like it's just more recently and now I am a woman in my 30s when so finding these other women. Um, and it's really cool because they totally see and recognize the need to mentor. I think other parts of the conversation that, you know, sort of relate to that are, are sort of about how filmmaking isn't about, you know, conquering and mastering technology, but, um, but being really connected to story. One of the uh, panelists talked about directing relationally, which I thought was really beautiful, and sort of this idea of dropping assumptions um, and being in process. Because for me, feminist filmmaking is about the process of storytelling, 
just as much about the product. Um, and another person spoke about this idea of filmmaking as an act of resilience, which I know we both relate to. Um, there's so many <laughs> moments in the journey when it seems impossible, um, but also through that process, you're building your muscle and you're potentially creating meaningful transformation within yourself and others. So before we jump into the episode, um, let's let our listeners know who is it that we're going to be hearing from today? Absolutely. So the first person that we're going to hear from today is Trisha Creason Valencia. She's an Emmy-nominated director and producer. She's from San Jose. Um, and in the event, she talks about her film, Chasing Boundaries, which tells a different narrative about the city of San Jose. She talks about how this was her biggest, you know, budgeted feature film and how she lost control of it. Second, we hear from Nadia Shihab, who was raised in West Texas by an Iraqi mother and a Yemeni father. She talks about her first feature documentary, Jadoland, which explores the meaning of home. She talks about how her decolonial lens is actually bringing her own perspective and narrative to topics that typically we only hear about through these liberal fantasies. Um, next, we're going to hear from Elena Guzman. She's an anthropologist and filmmaker whose film Smile for Kimmy works to destigmatize mental health diagnoses um, through a loving portrait of her friend, a young African-American woman who's diagnosed with a disassociative identity disorder. Um, it's a complex character portrait, you know, and it deals with heavy questions, but um, very importantly, there's also a lot of love and laughter and a deep friendship that shines through. The main character, Kim Edwards, is also a producer of the film. Lastly, we hear from Laura Menchaca Ruiz, who's a media maker and scholar from California. She talks about her work with Khadr Hendel on a media series called High Bethlehem. And the media series showcases the stories of everyday Palestinians to really supplement these media representations that often focus on dehumanizing narratives of the occupation in Palestine. So let's listen into the event. The, the concept of our event tonight is focusing on the decolonial lens. And um, we only wish that, you know, we could add an actual decolonial lens to our film kits, right? I kind of wish that it existed, right? You could just add it, you know, um, to your DSLR, whatever your um, film kit is, and it would be easy. Um, but I think we all know that it's much more complicated than that, right? The, given the colonial residue of documentary and of ethnographic film. So tonight we're really focusing on all the ways that um, the filmmakers we have tonight are trying to address that colonial residue in the different stages of production. I wanted to start with you know, giving the audience a chance to get to know a little bit about you personally, about your journey into filmmaking. Um, so anything that you might want to say about how did you get started? What, what brought you into filmmaking? Um, was there a specific moment? Uh, or was there sort of a, a way that you were able to break in? Um, and also, if there's anything you wanted to add about um, kind of where does your commitment to a decolonial lens emerge in terms of your own thinking or your own experiences? Um, I've always loved movies with all my heart. And my dad and I used to watch movies together constantly. And his philosophy was that it didn't matter if I couldn't understand it. If we were together and could talk about it afterward, then we would see it. And I remember him taking me, for example, to see foreign films I couldn't read yet. And he would sort of quietly read me the subtitles. I'm sure we were really annoying to other people in the theater. But that was my experience of just like this open-heartedness to film and how important it was. And so I didn't study film as an undergraduate. I studied psychology and Chicano studies. Um, and I became a community organizer. And I was working in the Spanish-speaking community, working on violence against women and girls issues. And we had a $5,000 grant, which is nothing but we're like we're super rich um and we were like we're gonna make a video to change the way everyone thinks about violence against women and girls um and crazily we we did it wasn't very good but we we did we made this film as a tool for social change and my aha moment was i was on the set i was in my mid-20s and the director was a 30 year old woman 
and I watched her work. And I was like, I could do that. I thought that filmmakers were magical unicorn people who had different talents than I did. And I watched her all day. And I was like, she's really good with people. She's a good communicator. She's super organized. She's the boss. I was like, I can do those things. So I decided to start taking film classes um, at a community college. I was, you know, had my BA already, and I just was like, I want to just explore this thing. And I, my lens was, I'm a community organizer, and I want to make tools. I want to make films that are a tool for social change. And how can I do that? So in my late 20s, I entered film school, and that was my goal. Um, so, as Emily said in my bio, I grew up in West Texas, and it's something that, you know, it's something I don't have to put in my bio, but I put it in there because I feel like if anything in my life has shaped the way in which I experience, um, you know, my life and the way in which I see things, it's, it's having been brought up in that place and having been brought up in a place like West Texas, a very conservative, Christian, uh, kind of desolate place by parents that were from the Middle East. And I think growing up there, I experienced many things that I didn't have a language for and that I didn't understand. And in part because I feel like I was constantly moving between worlds and straddling experiences. And that hybridity of experience is something I've carried with me to this day. And it's something that when I make cinema, I think about that a lot. I think about um, the layers of experience, the different exposures of um, a place. And uh, it's something that when I share some of my work, we'll talk about that a little bit. Um, I would say similarly, I kind of like, I, the work, as Emily mentioned, I, I do my research, my anthropological research um, on the border of Haiti and the Dominican Republic, but in general, I've always been concerned in thinking about um, narratives and storytelling of the African diaspora broadly. Um, conceived and so for me I am always thinking about borderlands in my work and like existing on peripheries of a of, of variety of places whether it be my own identity or even the kind of narratives uh, that I share so for me I think I've always been a storyteller um, I think only recently have I come to film but I've always been a storyteller and I've always tried to find a way to explain these stories um, and I, I always tell this story to people I'm sure people who heard this is tired of hearing it but I remember when I was in junior high I read a book by Esmeralda Santiago called When I Was Puerto Rican and it was the first time I was in junior high that I had read a book about um, anything that reflected me or my experience and I was like what people care about this kind of stuff I can write these kind of things and I think for me that was such a monumental shifting moment for me um, and so from there I think that's where my film making journey emerged and I've just always wanted to kind of tell stories that exist at those peripheries that people don't really think about and I think where my decolonial lens comes from is existing in these peripheries myself and then just kind of reflecting that So I don't really consider myself a filmmaker, um, and I feel like I'm on stage with a few unicorns. <laughs> but uh, I do consider myself someone who loves to tell stories and to listen to stories. Um, ever since I was small, I really liked to hear, to listen to people's stories. And they could be very simple ones, so they didn't have to be anything dramatic. Although I did win a few awards in elementary school for writing dramatic children's stories. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but uh, I guess I was really interested in film when I was in my early 20s. I was going to community college and I had taken some film courses and was really interested in pursuing it and talked to the chair of the department about what does it look like to sort of pursue film. And he really discouraged me from it, um, telling me that it's not really a good financial option and I wouldn't make a lot of money doing it. And so I kind of followed his advice, being the child of immigrants, you know, making money for my family was something important. So I kind of set that aside uh, and pursued other things that I thought would, would sort of pay the bills and was lucky enough to sort of come back to it through this love of stories. Uh, and the decolonial lens, I think, is really what is the impetus to, to do filmmaking or do media making. So um, coming from an immigrant family, I really saw how, and living in a community, you know, I think hybridity is the theme here tonight because living in a community that was mostly uh, white, one of the, you know, 
big cliques at my high school were white supremacists. Uh, there was really sort of this dialogue about who I was as a Mexican or who Mexicans were. And there was a dialogue that I was getting at home about who I was and who Mexicans were. And I saw such a dissonance uh, between those stories that really impacted me in such a deep way. So um, as I sort of moved through adulthood, I became really committed to telling, telling these stories and seeking out these stories from communities. You know, what are, what are those, um, those stories and feelings, emotions, those moments of intimacy that really give our lives and our identities meaning? We're talking about decolonial filmmaking, and often, fundamentally, what we're talking about is a struggle over representation. What are the tropes that um, you are challenging, um, and also, um, and how are you seeking to shift those narratives, um, and for whom? Right, the question of audience too, I think, comes into play when we when we think about narrative shift. Um, so I began making films right after 9/11. I was living in Austin, and um, it was a very like. God, everyone was just like, at least everyone I was around was on edge, and there was the buildup to the war in Iraq. And, um, and so I, I began to get involved in organizing. I hadn't made any films before. Um, and when I was getting involved in organizing, I, I, got, I kept getting this feeling that people wanted me to like be speaking. They wanted me to get on the microphone. And it was a very white space. It was very male space. A lot of men on the microphone, on the megaphone. And, um, and I, I kept finding myself in these situations where people were trying to put me on a stage, or at one point there was a debate, and we were going to debate, debate like the young Republicans of UT Austin, you know? And they were like, well, we need a woman on it. Nadia, you should do it. And I, like, I, didn't, I didn't know the rules of debate. You know, there are all these rules, and, that, and I didn't know all of that. And it was a really, really stressful time. And this isn't exactly, you're, you're getting at your question, but I felt like there was this way in which I was supposed to, you know, as a young Arab-American woman, I was this way that... People wanted me to fit in, you know, into whatever their liberal fantasy was of like what, you know, what they wanted me to be. And what I so appreciated about filmmaking um, was that it was a space where I could be all by myself. I didn't have to be in this oppositional dialogue where somebody else was deciding, you know, the vocabulary and the rules of the game, and I just had to kind of defend my point of view and argue, you know, according to their rules. But it was a space in which I could determine the language and. Um, the worldview, and I could kind of forge my own narrative that didn't begin where somebody else told me I had to begin. Um, and that was what was so liberating about the first time I began shooting and especially began editing, because that was really the writing process. Um, so for me, I had watched a bunch of uh, films on like disassociative identity disorder, and some of them were really bizarre. It was kind of almost like, presenting a football team, you know, it'd be like, and this personality, and this personality, it'd be like a map of all the personalities, and I thought how um, it just seemed so, it just wasn't, it didn't seem appropriate, and it seemed almost like it was making a, a spectacle of the person. And so um, I think for me, I wanted to be able to breathe some kind of complexity and allow people to see um, Kaylee, um, who is the person that we mostly see talking in this video, um, just be able to express her, her, herself when she's laughing and joking, but also when she's very introspective and talking about really deep and difficult things. And for me, um, I know, well, there's not a lot of films that talk about uh, mental health in the first place, but specifically about um, women of color. Um, and the way in which they navigate and understand and deal with um, mental health. And so what is going to emerge from this documentary is not only a portrait of Kaylee, Kim, and her various selves, but also the kind of intersections with race and policing um, that a lot of people don't often think about when it comes to um, these various topics. And so for me, I think that was one of the tropes that I was trying to um, to counter, was going against um, just the lack of representation in the first place and allowing her story to be able to show that in a way that wasn't being shown. A question that we like to ask on the podcast um, is about uh, the bad feminist moment. So related but different. And, um, and when we say um, sort of what's your bad feminist moment, um, 
what we mean is, even as we might be trying to um, act in the world as feminists, accepting that we are not outside of patriarchy, right? And that we're going to make mistakes on the way, but, our, but being willing to be reflexive and, and to really learn from those experiences. So, so kind of a, a moment where you may have um, kind of fucked up and, and <laughs> sort of in looking back, maybe have a, a clear sense of what you might do differently. So many, so many. I mean, w one of the things that I'll just say is I tend to collaborate with um, one of my best friends, a woman named Meadow. Uh, sh we met in that community college class before I had decided to go to film school, and she was in a transitional phase of her life, and sh we've been collaborators for, for two decades, and sh I don't shoot without her on set. And she's very versatile. I'd be like, today you're going to be sound recordist, but tomorrow you're going to be shooting. You know, I mean, sh we just work it out so that she can be by my side. Because um, our motto that we say to each other in those darkest, darkest moments is, it's not good to quit. <laughs> and we kind of usually end up saying it like that. Because you always reach a point where you're just like, I, I don't know, I'm exhausted, I can't figure it out, it's not going the way we thought it was going to go. Um, I f think that filmmaking is a, a deep act of, of resilience at its core. And you just have to be really, really unwilling to quit. Um, for all the reasons, right? You're going to show them. You really think these stories are important. You owe it to your to your to your your characters, to the people that you're collaborating with. Um, so that's sort of at the fundamental place. And I think because I've been doing this for a while now, like I I was mentioning to someone, my very very first film that I made in film school was about uh, women of color who had been cheerleaders in high school who went on to become activists in the community, and it was a really fun conception. Um, and my mother was a cheerleader and a woman of color and I wouldn't include her in the project and people were like why not what's happening <laughs> and I was like I had done this like oral history thing with her in college that had gone really badly because I heard myself on tape just making all these assumptions and being so frustrated with her and wanting to define her journey for her and I was a I was young and it was embarrassing so fast forward and I'm like I'm not going to do that again I'm not going to include her in the project and I remember my advisors in film school being like you need to include your mother in the project so I did, and then I watched the footage, and I was making assumptions, and I was expecting her to say certain things, and I was frustrated when she didn't, and it was like, oh my God, why have I not progressed in this decade since I did the first project to the second project? And you know, now, many, many, many years later, I think I'm much better at um, checking my assumptions, and, and I'm much more relational in the way that I interact with folks that I'm collaborating with or working with on these projects. I really try to listen and hear what they have to say and not bring the preconceived notions, which is why I think your thing is so delightful. It's like, I don't want to ask the same old questions. I don't want to fall into the same tropes. I don't want to assert my feminist agenda, which is what I'm usually doing, frankly. I mean, like, you know, I've got my perspective and I'm clear about it and I want to get people to respond to that. Um, so I think a lot of what I've learned to do is just to mellow out <laughs> and to listen and to really create space for conversation. And I think one of the things I'm seeing in all three of the projects you all showed is, is that you're creating that relational space and it feels really authentic. And those women are really telling their stories. Um, so yeah, don't quit and listen. <laughs> Picking up on something Trisha said, you know, you mentioned you you like you bring Meadow on all of your projects, no matter what. Um, I love that, <laughs> and I, I think sort of in Ethnocene, we we kind of do the same, right? Um, it somehow feels more possible, and and the challenges seem more manageable, or or we have the space to even kind of debrief those bad feminist moments, right? Um, and and to grow. Um, because, you know, as Laura said, it's, it's a matter of when, not if, right? Those moments come along. Um, so I, I, what I want to ask is, um, you know, what are ways like that, like finding your meadow, given that all of you um, are, are in some ways trying to open the space for these counter-narratives in, in an industry that is, uh, you know, not necessarily, that, that sort of has a very dominant uh, approach that's not, not the one that we're, that, you know, is characterized by the films we've seen today, um, but, and, and sometimes very hostile 
um, to either the perspectives or the approaches that, that we bring to the table. Um, so what are some of the tactics and strategies that um, you found that, that work to shift the industry, even if it feels small, right? So, because I think it's, it's quite important for us to recognize that, you know, it might sometimes feel that we're each working on our own films, right? But in a way, each of us is contributing to, to shifting the industry and changing it. So, so getting a little bit at some of these, um, you know, small, small tactics or strategies that, that you might be able to share with um, the audience. Yeah, I mean, that woman, the 25-year-old on the set that was like, I'm good at being the boss, I want that job, is part of why I'm a director, because I get to decide. I get to figure out who's on my set with me, and I get to find the best collaborators, and I get to rehire them. And I mean, it's this, this you, you, we talk about representation and struggle, and there aren't enough people in the industry who can do this, and we know there are. We know we're here, so we need to hire each other. And we need to pay each other fairly, and we need to not ask each other to work for free. Um, and, you know, I've turned down jobs. I've been insulted and been like, no, I'm not going to do that because I can't pay my cinematographer properly. I've also taken pay cuts for myself so that I can pay my cinematographer properly. I value their work and I value the art. Um, so some of it's economics. And, you know, embedded in, in that film that you saw, it was the biggest budget film I ever directed. And that was such a luxury and I could hire great people. Um, but the, the risk, the problem was I didn't own it when it was over because it was a commission. And all my other work, I've fundraised dollar by dollar, month by month, year by year, and it takes five years to finish. And I was able to finish that in a year. So there's not a simple solution, um, but it does come down to economics. And I will not not pay my people fairly. I just, I won't do it anymore. Um, so hire women. <laughs> Um, so I'm not, I don't really consider myself in the industry, I guess, but, um, something that I really love and appreciate is the idea of public art. So I've always really loved, uh, murals, you know, artists who, who really put their work out there for free and it's visible and accessible to communities. I was from a family that, um, in a economic class background where I didn't always feel comfortable in museums or comfortable in spaces where, where art is sort of curated for a certain group. And I guess in thinking about how to make media, I kind of see the, the same thing. So that sometimes films that I really want to see are not accessible because they're shown at, you know, Cannes or they're shown at these festivals that are not places that I'm going to be able to fly to to see them. And then I can't uh, always purchase them or, you know, online. So um, through this media project, something that we talked about that was very important to us is that we make it sort of like very public. So in Bethlehem, the way the social media tool is Facebook. Um, so we're going to make a Facebook page, and these videos are going to be released bi-weekly on the page. And then we're going to create a website that has an archive where people can go and access them. Where um, So I guess this way of really trying to make the work that we create accessible and easily disseminated among people is something that's really important and central to our work is availability to anyone who, to anyone and everyone. So now I want to move to a question about the female gaze. Um, and there was an article um, that um, Mary Angel from Ethnocene came across. Um, and it's an article by Tori Telfer um, in Vulture. And um, if, if you're interested in reading it later, we, it's posted in our um, Bad Feminist Making Films uh, Facebook page. Um, but I'll, I'll just read a very short quote from it, um, The Female Gaze. It's feminine and unashamed. It's part of an old-fashioned gender binary. It should be studied and developed. It should be destroyed. It will save us. It will hold us back. So it, it, um, it can be all these things, right? And it goes on to actually um, quote from different filmmakers, um, uh, femme filmmakers who have different, very different um, takes on what the female gaze is. So I, I wondered if anybody wants to um, say something about what, what, what they think. What, what do you think the female gaze is and, or how do you approach it um, in your own work? So the female gaze, it's a very interesting um, concept and ideal. And obviously it's countering the notion of the male gaze, right? Um, which is very popular in Hollywood and 
the filmmaking industry. Um, aside from the, you know, gender binary, maybe not female gaze, maybe the woman's gaze. Um, I think for me at least, um, it's coming from a place of uh, love and sensitivity. And I feel like that's something that is across this panel that I've seen, um, is that the work that we're doing is not coming from a place of curiosity, but of deep love and affection for the communities that we are a part of, are part of or the people that we love. Um, and so the, I guess that's the way that I think of the, the gaze that I put. Um, and for, you know, the way that I was framing in my, in my expert excerpt, what I hope came across was like a deep love that I have for this person. Um, and the way that I'm attempting to shape that narrative as well. And, um, and so for me, that's the, the crux of it is, is like a deep love. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I think I, I actually think that came through in all, all of the clips that we saw. And I, I was really moved, um, even, though I'd, even though I had seen most of them before, just seeing on the big screen, I felt that. So I reference Jill Soloway when I teach about the female gaze with my students, um, you know, rather than objectifying, right? I mean, I think we kind of have a basic understanding of what the male gaze might mean. And, and their definition of the female gaze is, is quite straightforward. Um, they, they did a one-hour talk at the Toronto Film Festival that I use. Um, and fundamentally, it's the camera as a tool for building empathy which I think is pretty much what you're saying. It's just another layer. So uh, that's the lens that I use, that I apply. After I have watched this piece, do I now have more empathy for the characters within it? And that works for me. So the last question I have um, is, what advice do you have um, for the feminist filmmakers out um, who are in the audience or who might be listening um, to the podcast later? Um, what is what are some of the things you wish you knew earlier in your journey? Um, and what's the sort of wisdom that you now hold that you only came across through challenging situations, right? Well, what are those sort of um, what is that hard-earned wisdom um, that each of you have? So sometimes when I think back to when I first started making films, and I, I also didn't study film, and um, if I had known like everything that I know now, or if I had known what it takes to make a film, I don't think I would have ever started. Like it would have been so overwhelming. But I was so naive and I was so confident. I was like, "Yeah, I just got this camera. I'm going to make a documentary." If I, you know, um, my first film was about this anarchist bookstore in Austin. Um, and actually, it was really like fun, and I didn't have um, I didn't have a kind I didn't even have self consciousness about it. I just was very confident, um, and I think there's something really beautiful about that when you're younger. And maybe people retain it through their whole life, but I think the more that I learn about cinema and the more that I learn about my own practice, the more critical my mind becomes in both a positive way and in a way that can hinder I think the creative process. Um, that's one observation, and another is that. One thing I'm really interested in now at this juncture in my life, because I just had a baby who's one year old, and it's, I found it's becoming uh, much more difficult. Like, I can't just sit at a computer for eight hours and edit anymore. Like, maybe I have 45 minutes, you know, to take a shower or something. Um, and so what I'm interested now in is in constraints and how to use creative constraints in a helpful way to make work. Um, and so what does... What does filmmaking look like with different kinds of constraints? And I guess advice, I don't know if that's the question, but you know, how to use those constraints in a, in a productive, positive, helpful way in your own work. So I guess something I would say is just that it's doable. Um, I think if you have a camcorder, yeah, <laughs> you can go ahead and go make films. Um, that's what I wish I would have known. I think that I thought it required a lot of training and education and uh, money. And I realized that what if you have a compelling story, uh, really people will listen and, and watch. They're very patient. They're patient viewers. So um, if you're a good storyteller, if you're someone who's intrigued by stories, then you can, you can make the, the art that you want to make. You don't have to be inhibited by money or education or these things that kind of weigh us down. 
You're listening to our recording of our live event in San Jose, focused on a decolonial lens. We have to take a break, but we'll be right back. Welcome back to Bad Feminists Making Films, a podcast on full-service radio presented by Riza and Ethnocene Collectives. We've been listening to a recording of our live event in San Jose. Um, now we're going to turn to the question and answer where we had some really thought-provoking questions from our audience. So let's listen in. So I guess this is sort of like more of a specific question, but... I think a lot of your films are very, I guess, personal stories um, where you like have a very large personal stake in the people or the community. How do you balance like how much of you to put in there? Like, do you balance what you think you want or like what feels right is what I'm asking. I try to give myself options when shooting um, so that I mean, for all of my films, they've been in some way related to my family, so it made sense that, you know, you know that I'm the one that's filming the film, but um, with this most recent project, I, you know, I tried not to definitely hide myself in the, in, the, in the material, and then it was four years of editing without my voice in it, without seeing me at all, um, until I started to put myself in it after people started to give feedback, and I think it just depends on the project and the story. Um, Oh, and I, one time someone told me, it was like a rough cut of the film, and he was like a very established editor, and he, he was very helpful in some ways, but he also, well, anyway, he gave me some advice, not to think it's okay, um, saying that, you know, you have to be prepared because your voice is in this film. Um, it's like female narrated. It's about a, you know, a woman and her mother and uh, mother-daughter stories. Like, people are going to be ready to hate on your film. And I was like, later I was like, who, like, who are you talking about exactly? Um, and then I was in a conversation with some friends about Rotten Tomatoes and about how, you know, like, who was who writing for Rotten Tomatoes? And then um, I was thinking there should be an alternative rotten to, to, to Rotten Tomatoes called Juicy Papayas that maybe <laughs> is started by Bad Feminist Making Film. Just an idea. Okay. Hi. First, um, I, I want to thank you all for um, these. We just saw clips, but you can see how powerful they are. And... Um, and, you know, the question about the opposite of the male gaze and, you know, what you said about love and empathy. And I, I also hear, um, you know, solidarity, right? I hear um, witnessing um, and, uh, you know, all of um, being with, right, and, and with, uh, with others. And um, so I, I just think that's, that's really powerful. Um, and... Yeah, and I wanted to ask a question about about place. And Nadia, you use the word dislocation, um, and you're using the words connection, right? And so, um, yeah, what? How do you? I, I guess how it maybe to play with time and space, right? That that we're inhabiting, um, I guess, different places and. Um, uh, you know, at the same time or in the past and the future, and um, uh, we're inhabiting different different places when we meet, whether you know a Chicano or Mexican American in Palestine, right? And um, so I don't know. I just wonder how place has figured, and, and you know, of course, your documentary is um, very much about the stories and the and, and how space is is created and. Um, uh, you know, here in, in, in San Jose, um, but also the way it's denied, right? Uh, so, yeah, so a question about, about place and, and space. So, yeah, Chicana in Palestine. <laughs> How did that happen? Um, so, uh, when I was going to community college, it was at a time when uh, the, the border... You know, I lived in California, in Southern California, and 100 miles in from the border, the Border Patrol was allowed to have checkpoints. And so when I went to community college, I had to cross this checkpoint. And um, I was routinely stopped because I was brown. I was in a pretty shitty little Honda. And um, would be asked for my identification. 
um, pretty much every time that I went, sometimes my trunk would be searched. Um, there, was a, there was a moment when Border Patrol came onto our campus and was uh, asking students for identification. And it was just sort of life as I knew it. And um, I went to Turkey for a conference many, many years later and had a friend who was uh, in Palestine for a bit, and she had invited me to come see her. So I went and um, was kind of shocked to realize that there I was taken for Palestinian and asked for my ID. And when I crossed checkpoints, I had this sort of um, similar experience, something that made, reminded me of this other experience that I'd had. And um, certainly not to, to make an exact parallel because it's very different but there was sort of a, something that resonated to me about, okay, then what is this about? That, that sort of, um, there's this intensive policing of, of people and this, this sort of uh, marking out of territories and, and, and what happens to these overlapping histories that are, that are there that are being erased. And it made me really curious to go, to go back to Palestine. And, um, so being there now, I think something that I've learned is, is our experiences are very different. And, but there's sort of a, a sensibility that's created from, from being someone who's sort of like living on the margins. So there's sort of a dominant society that makes the rules. And if you're outside of that, there's a sensibility that is really generated from the experiences that you have. And so something that I found in Palestine is that Although our situations are really different and we're learning from each other, there's, there's a kind of sensibility that, that is shared at times. And I find that really heartening for doing solidarity work. Um, and it really helps me to rethink maybe the kind of work that I would do in the US in my own community. So uh, space has figured pretty large and it's, it's been hard navigating the space, but also uh, really generative. And I'm grateful for that. Um, I, you know, I think I came to, I began making personal films um, in some ways because I was in a, like, a few situations in my early 20s where I felt like, at one point I was working with young refugee women, and another period I was with working with internally displaced women in Turkey. And, and in, in various situations, especially when you're working with young women and the women, you know, like young women are beautiful and vivacious and um, it becomes so easy to point the camera at them, especially when you're in um, these relationships, like these economic relationships of like nonprofits getting funding and needing to tell people's stories or if um, I, you're empowering the woman by, I don't know, there's there just like so much language around it. It was like so icky and, um, and I found it like, uh, I just found it so problematic and so, um, you know, those kind of extractive relationships. And so for me, like going to that personal space and, and, and working on projects that are, you know, necessarily like from my position and necessarily from the place from where I am, um, and that's connected to place, whether it's, you know, my hometown or uh, my very, one of my early films was with my grandparents in Toronto. They had come from Iraq and they were watching the war in their homeland through their TV screen and they lived in this tiny apartment. And so a lot of my films are bounded in that way, um, but they're connected to places that are far away and that, that brings back that dislocation. Thank you so much for sharing your work. It's all so very moving and I think it really speaks to the care that your gazes bring to the subject matter and the people that you're working with. Um, but in thinking about the gaze, there's of course the moment which we've talked about here about the moment when you're in a room or in a space with your camera and have that kind of intimacy, but also the gaze when you're editing. And for those of you who shoot the material that you edit, if you could speak to the intimacy of sort of logging footage and rewatching and and how that's a kind of, you know, act of falling, for me at least, like sort of act of falling in love too, apart from the camera work. 
It's funny because when you said intimacy and logging, I was like, what? <laughs> but it's a disjuncture, but I know, I absolutely know what you mean. Um, the, the footage that I started off with uh, for Smile for Kimmy, which uh, started off blurry and then kind of like has various shots of her as she moves around. She, uh, she wasn't really aware that the camera was on her. It was one of those moments where I was logging through and I was just like, this is so beautiful. <laughs> you know, like I was just so like, um, just, it just felt so intimate. And it's just something that I felt, it's felt so beautiful to me. Um, and so I feel like I go through that footage. And also, I think there's, you know, and I'm sure a lot of other people can talk about this and it's been talked about elsewhere, but what ends up in the film and what doesn't end up in the film. And so I feel like I have access to this larger story that nobody else is going to have access to. And so through logging the footage and listening to everything and, and listening to all of those uh, really important details that sometimes just can't make it into the film and you have to make those tough decisions like, oh, this is so important, but... I'm gonna have to cut this, you know? And so I think for me, those are the two aspects of intimacy that I get in that editing process, is like actually just being able to see the footage and see this person, and then also at the same time hear their story in a way that I know nobody else is gonna hear that story. I mean, editing is so joyful, especially when you're watching your material for the first time. Like, when else do you get to experience something for the first time? Um, but then, um, and I also think it, like for me, it's been immensely important to make me a better shooter because you see your mistakes, right? Um, and it's this iterative process. Um, and but there's also something so crazy about editing where you can just go into it, like into this deep, dark hole. And I feel like I've had so many periods where, um, actually the first time I ever began to experience anxiety and stress in my life was in this period of mm -hmm. editing. And it was so close to this to feeling excitement too. It was like this really fine line where I'd be like on my editing chair, like totally tweaked out at three in the morning, you know? And it's like you have a deadline the next day for a grant and you're just like, ah! it's like so nuts, crazy making, but um, it's so like amazing and thrilling to, um, yeah, and I, and I can't imagine actually making films without also having learned editing, you know, just because of that, it's the writing process. And then I think for me, remembering to show the work to other people, and this is something that I say to my students all the time, is like, you get into your loop about, oh, this really works, and isn't she amazing, and I love her so much, and then other people are like, yeah, that's not working. What? what you, but, but, but the thing, and the backstory, and it took us six days, and we were there, and we stayed up all night, and they're like, yeah, it's not working. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so all of that sort of factoring into what is editing, how do you find the story, what do you, you know, what works? because ultimately it has to work. Hi, um, thank you for, um, I mean, the films are, were amazing and powerful, and, um, and I really enjoyed when, when you talked about paying your, your artists and paying the people you're there. I mean, I think that's, that's crucial for all levels, from writers, poets, too. Um, again, muralism, especially filmmakers. Um, and again, with, with access, I'm putting this for free on, or making it accessible on, on these media outlets like Facebook. And all that. And uh, my question really revolves around audience. Um, I mean, especially when, when you're, you know, making it accessible. Do you think about audience when you're filming this? Um, I know, um, I, I, not Nadia. You said something like you you don't think about the script or beforehand, but or yeah. Um, so I was just thinking too. Is, is there the, is the audience in mind while you're before this goes into production or before you even go into filming, or or is that just kind of I guess, the, whatever public life it takes on afterwards. Um, I try not to think about audience when I'm making the film. I find that it does interfere with my process. And I actually had to put a sign that's framed in front of my editing desk that says, you're the only one that has to like it. Um, but when the film is done, I find that then I can start thinking about audience. And also, the, audience, the film finds the audience in the world, I think. Uh, I think for our project, audience is very much at the forefront of our minds. Um, so when we talked about what we wanted the project to do, sort of the, the indicator for us of being successful is we wanted people to, to really say, like, that's my city. You know, like to see themselves, to see the people, the guy who, you know, sells, guy who sells bread on the street with a push cart, you know, the person who opened up the dog shelter, the person who did the you know the barber scene like getting your nails done things that are very commonplace in the city for people to just see themselves and see home in it because yes like the tanks and the wall the, these are all aspects that are there but when we think about really home um, that's not what people think of 
So we really wanted to, to show that. Um, yeah, thank you guys so much for, for coming out tonight and uh, sharing all of your films. Um, I think when, when you're in a position of, a, of an artist or a creative professional, um, and you are in the position where you can set your own deadlines, um, it can be really hard to commit to, to your work. Um, so my question is, how do you know when, when your film is done? How do you know when you can like, stop and be happy with it? The film is done because there's a deadline. You're not done. You're never done. And you watch it every time and you're like, oh, God, yeah, well, we were going to do the thing. Oh, right. Ooh, that's, a, that's a not a good transition. <laughs> Whatever it is, you're not done because you, you could do it forever. And I think, um, you know, not to cast too many of my film school compatriots with a wide brush, but like they're not filmmakers because they can't be done. They could never master the business side of it. They could never master the deadline side, the deliverables. It, it needs to be done, whether it's a film festival deadline or whatever it is. Um, so it, you, that's it. You just have to turn it over to somebody else. And I mean, I am the worst procrastinator. And like one of my students is in the room. Don't listen to this, Michelle. Um, I mean, I literally will be like, okay, we, we, the drive, they're here to pick up the drive because the thing is tonight. So come on, I need the drive. And my post-production team is like, okay, but we just need it. Uh, there goes the drive. <laughs> so that's how I do it. <laughs> so that was a great and very apt moment to end the live event. Uh, Emily, I know that we both really relate to so many of these moments where we just sort of eat by um, and dealing with deadlines and just barely getting things in under the wire and this kind of never ending process of pushing forward, even when things feel impossible and never feeling like things are done. And um, I think that's also part of, you know, why having community and telling these really authentic stories about the ups and downs and all arounds, I suppose you could say, of being a filmmaker um, are really helpful so that when you do finish something last minute, you don't feel like the most giant fuck up ever. You realize you're just a filmmaker <laughs> and it's totally normal. Um, and we can kind of encourage each other to keep going in those moments when it feels like just hard and really stressful. Um, I loved hearing uh, all of these really authentic, uh, genuine stories and reflections on filmmaking. So um, what's today's shout out? So today's shout out is an opportunity to see the work of one of our featured filmmakers, Nadia Shihab. Um, her first feature length is making the film festival circuit right now, but if you don't happen to be going to any of those festivals, um, one of the themes for today, of course, is accessibility for those who don't have a chance to say fly to the Cannes Film Festival. So you can actually catch her film, her first film, Amal's Garden, streaming on Canopy. And that's the film that she mentions in the podcast about how her grandparents were watching the Iraq War from their television set in Toronto. So it sounds like a really powerful film, and you can get access to it through um, your public library or your university, and it's Canopy with a K. And I also want to remind you that if you want to take a look at um, the clips from our event, as well as hear the filmmakers talk about their decolonial lens. Those are going to be on our website at badfeministmakingfilms.com. A big shout out to our episode producer, Laura Menteca Ruiz, as well as the amazing Ethnocene team and Represent Media for making our live event such a huge success. Thanks for listening to Bad Feminist Making Films. See you next time. Full service radio.